I think many of us Christians, or at least some of us, look at the New Testament and think that's, that's for us, and the rest of the stuff was for somebody else and really doesn't have any, um, have any influence or effect uh, on us. And so I want to try to ask and answer that question this morning. Did Jesus, when he came, did he cancel the Old Testament? And there's some kind of basic questions that... Um, I think people add, not I think, people have asked me already about the Old Testament that uh, almost mandates what we wrestle with this. I've, I've gotten questions like uh, from family that's about to have a little boy and they call up and say, you know, you know, as a faithful Christian, should we have our son circumcised? I've had people ask, I've been reading some things in the Old Testament about uh, foods that you're supposed to eat or it's okay to eat and foods that you shouldn't eat. Should we remove bacon from our diet because it says that they're not supposed to eat, uh, we're not supposed to eat pig, anything from a pig? Um, Should we be celebrating um, or worshiping God on Saturday or Friday night instead of of Sunday? Uh, Sometimes Christians today talk about the Sabbath, but we don't observe the Sabbath, most of us as Christians. Uh, We observe the Lord's Day. We have gathered together here on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, when we commemorate the resurrection of our Savior, versus the Jewish people, they would have been gathering together to worship on Friday evening. If you go to a synagogue today, you'll go to a Shabbat Eve service, a Sabbath Eve service, which is Friday evening. Sabbath runs from uh, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So should we do like uh, the Seventh-day Adventists and some other Christian groups that worship on, on uh, Saturday instead of Sunday. And here's something of a contemporary issue that's uh, cropped up with some intensity in, the re- in recent years. A question, why is it that some Christian farmers uh, don't have any qualms about planting soybeans and corn in the same field? Why do those same Christian farmers look at something else that's taken from the very same place in the Old Testament where it says that men are not to have homosexual relationships and say the one remains in force and the other doesn't. So those are some of the kinds of questions that surface when we're trying to wrestle with the impact of the import of the Old Testament in the life of a New Testament Christian. So let me have you turn to Luke chapter 6. I'll pray for us, and then we'll dive into this passage. Father, as we um, wrestle with this uh, something of a thorny issue, not just in our day, but how much more uh, so in Jesus' day, I pray that you would give us the mind of Christ, that you give us understanding, that you would give us discernment, that we would hear the Holy Spirit and hear the Word of God, that we might benefit from this massive portion of scripture that the scripture itself testifies to say that it's all beneficial for reproof for correction for training in righteousness for doctrine that we not see our bible simply as small and thin but as large and as massive and that we might not see the message of the new covenant as something innovative something just well, that didn't work, let's try this. But understand the magnitude and the intentionality of your plan from even before the foundation of the earth. I pray, Lord, that you would hide me today and that instead you would make much of Jesus. I pray that um, 
we'd remember the things that your spirit has to say to us this morning and my words be forgotten for Jesus sake amen Luke 6 first 11 verses one Sabbath day as Jesus was walking through some grain fields his disciples broke off heads of grain rubbed off the husks in their hands and ate the grain But some Pharisees said, why are you breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Now, we said the other week, the Pharisees were Jesus' chief critics, they along with the teachers of the law. The Pharisees, though, were in many ways the evangelicals of Jesus' era. They were strictly loyal to the scriptures. They believed that they were all God's revelation. They tried scrupulously to make sure they kept everything that was given in scripture. Uh, they They were going around around encouraging other people to be faithful to God and and watching them if they weren't and calling them out for it. So in many ways, um, they are uh, spiritual cousins or spiritual ancestors to us who consider ourselves evangelicals. But they were also Jesus' biggest critic. Jesus replied, haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? Of course, talking about King David. He went into the house of God and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests can eat. He also gave some to his companions. And Jesus added, the Son of Man, this is a reference to himself, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. On another Sabbath day, a man with a deformed right hand was in the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely. If he healed the man's hand... They planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. And this was the foundational no-no for the Sabbath. Don't work. But Jesus knew their thoughts. He said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. So the man came forward. And then Jesus said to his critics, I have a question for you. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it. He looked around at them one by one and then said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At this, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and began to discuss what to do with him. Now when Matthew records this account in Matthew chapter 12, he goes further and said they not only were trying to decide what to do with him, they actually called a meeting, they got together to figure out how they could kill him and get away with it. So it wasn't just that they were opponents. They were determined to shut Jesus up, to silence him. Now, before I go into talk, try to unpack the text a little bit, let me give you a crash course on the Old Testament law. When we talk about, use the word law in reference to the Old Testament, we're talking about the, what was called the law of Moses. But technically, that's not accurate. It wasn't the law of Moses. Moses didn't come up with it. He didn't create it. It was the law of God that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. God wrote it down on the tablets, on the original tablets. Of course, they got broken, and then God had Moses write the Ten Commandments on the remaining tablets. But he gave much more to Moses on the mountain than simply the Ten Commandments. And all of that comprised what is called the law of Moses today. 
And so when the people spoke in Jesus' day about the law, they're speaking about, yes, the Ten Commandments, but more than that, the commands that were given throughout the uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but primarily Exodus on. So those four books contain the law. Now, there are three essential kinds of law in those chapters, if you read through them. There's the moral law, there's the civil law, and there's a ceremonial or ritual law. Now, the moral law were laws like the Ten Commandments that were given to all people of all time, not just the Jewish people that comprised the group that Moses was speaking to. And so, for example, you look at the Ten Commandments, it says don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. Those are moral laws that are repeated in the New Testament and are given for all time to all people. Then there's the civil law. Now, these would be laws like you and I have laws uh, as Americans that we are expected to obey. They are created by our legislators, and they're given for everybody. And so if you drive down Route 30, there are certain places where the civil law says you go 35 mile an hour. Other places, the civil law says you go 45. The civil law says that if you are publicly intoxicated, you can be uh, cited for public drunkenness or whatever. You could go to jail for the night. The civil law tells us all these kinds of things of how we conduct ourselves among other American citizens. Now, Israel, Israel was a theocracy, a state under God as president, under God as the premier. They didn't have, early on, they didn't have a king. They didn't have a president. In fact, when they wanted a king, uh, God took it as a personal insult because he's looking around saying, I'm your king. You are a theocracy. The word theos is, in Greek means God. So God's instead of democracy, it's a theocracy. God is in charge. He's ruling over everything. And so when Moses starts to lead the children out of, uh, out of Egypt, he's not seen as the president. He's not seen as a premier. He's seen as a spokesman for God. Joshua replaces him. Joshua is a military commander, but he's a spokesman for God. After Joshua comes the judges down through a a season of Israel's history before they got a king. And these men had judici- and women had judicial responsibilities, but they also had spiritual responsibilities. In fact, those were the premier responsibilities. And so under God, they were a theocracy and they had certain rules that they were to follow, certain laws they were to follow. So for example, if you go to uh, Exodus chapter 21, you'll find in there a law that says if someone kidnaps somebody else, And you catch the kidnapper, whether he's got the person with him or he's already sold him or her into slavery, you execute the kidnapper. That's an example of a civil law. A little bit later in that same chapter, it talks about two men who are fighting and says in the course of that fight, if one of the men punches, accidentally punches a woman bystander who's pregnant, he must pay her whatever compensation her husband requires. So if he says, you know, you, you bruised her or maybe you made her miscarry, um, it's going to cost you, I want, I want you to pay me $5,000. Whatever he asks, you have to pay him. Those are examples of civil laws. Then we get to ceremonial laws or ritual laws. And this is, this is what a lot of the laws were in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but especially Exodus and Leviticus. So examples would include circumcision. God had told Abram, all of your males born, born as, in your family and your descendants, all the males are to be circumcised 
at eight days old. Jesus was circumcised as a Jewish boy at eight days old. This, is, this was a symbolic sign of the unique covenant that God had with the nation of Israel. It was symbolic. First of all, it didn't apply to everyone. It didn't apply to women. But women were included in the sign in the sense that God's, God wants to give them a symbol so that it could always be reminded there's a unique relationship that we have with God. Now, secondly, uh, exa- second example would be the sacrifices. This is the biggest one. Biggest ritual or ceremonial law in the Old Testament is when you sin, you bring a goat, you bring a bull, you bring a, a lamb, you bring a turtle dove to the, to the tabernacle and later the temple, and you offer that up to God as a sacrifice to pay for your sins. Another one would be the temple, the very existence of the temple or the tabernacle. Everything... Uh, revolved around the temple and so for example when you would have uh, feast days like passover or feast of booths if you had the money and the capability even if you lived a hundred miles away from jerusalem you were expected to make the trek to jerusalem and celebrate the holy day there that's where the sacrifices were to be made and so forth the temple was a key fixture in uh, not just the um, civil life of Israel, but especially this, the spiritual life of Israel. And then last would be the Sabbath, the one we're talking about, Jesus is talking about here this morning. And God had said, way back in Genesis chapter 1, even before Abram came on the scene, he said this, uh, the Lord rested on the first day after he was done with, or, I'm sorry, on the last day after he was done with creating the world. So he spends six days creating the world and the universe and everything that's in it, and then he takes a break. And he says, I want you to do the same thing. And he reiterated, reiterated this with, uh, with uh, Moses on Mount Sinai. He said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it what? Holy. Keep it holy. Keep it distinct. Keep it separate. And it was a big deal. Jesus' critics weren't just being fussy. In fact, Jesus, or, uh, God, when he uh, enforced the Sabbath holiness code, in the Old Testament, actually had Israel put to death a guy who was doing nothing but gathering firewood in the Sabbath. And God says, I'm going to make an example of him. This is to be kept holy. And he argues in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus on a number of occasions, I'm going to teach you to distinguish between the holy and the unholy, between the common and the uncommon. And Sabbath was key to doing that. So no work on the Sabbath. Now, the problem was, by Jesus' day, there had been so much, uh, almost like the law was a Christmas tree when it came to the Sabbath, and people had hung so many icicles and balls and tinsel that the tree was hardly able to be seen anymore. The Sabbath, the idea was to keep the Sabbath holy, and you weren't to do any work, but along the uh, decades and centuries... Jewish rabbis and Jewish scribes had added their applications of what that meant so that you, it, it was, you almost had to have a printed book out. You can do this, you can't do this. And so, for example, this is one of the challenges for Bible teachers. We look at the Scripture and then we try to help in our teaching how to apply this Scripture. But we have to be really careful because by the time Jesus is on the scene, all of these applications had taken on a life of their own and so there was cheating going on to to violate the spirit of the sabbath so for example the assumption was you the rabbi said you can't travel on the sabbath well here's how they got around that 
uh, they, they determined that any place you set down food could be considered your home. And you're always allowed to go home on the Sabbath. And so if you wanted to make a little trip of, let's say, two miles on the Sabbath, the day before Sabbath, you might take some food two miles down the road and set it on a tree stump. And then on the Sabbath day, you could walk from point A, which was your home, to point B, two miles down the road, and that wouldn't be considered work. And so the glory of God had totally been lost by people's kind of twisting and and doing workarounds and so forth. And so whether or not the Pharisees' criticism was actually genuine is, is somewhat open to question. So let's look at the instances, what took place, and how Jesus was responding to them. The fundamental charge here against Jesus was that you are a lawbreaker. The law says you can't work on Sabbath. Here your disciples are walking through a grain field. They're plucking heads of grain. They're opening those heads of grain, taking the husk out, and eating them. You were allowed to eat on the Sabbath, but you could not plant on the Sabbath. You could not harvest on the Sabbath. And that's what they were saying Jesus' disciples were doing. Now, they're looking at Jesus' disciples and saying they're doing this, but really what they're doing is saying, Jesus, you're permitting this. You're ultimately responsible for this. Now, again, I'm not convinced the Pharisees were so concerned about God's law, but that they were concerned about the added laws that the rabbis had added over the years. And again, I I, I make this argument. We have to be so careful when we look at the scriptures that we don't go beyond the scriptures when we apply it. Um, I remember years ago, um, back in the mid fifties, mid fifties, sixties, seventies, where very fundamentalist churches had a holiness code of their own, where they would say, um, "Okay, you can't, uh, ladies, you can't wear nail polish, you can't wear lipstick, things like that." And they were pulling that from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, that says a woman's beauty should not depend on things like braided hair and expensive jewelry and so forth. And so they made the leap from this is not what you should bank on, on for your beauty to you can't do this to make yourself beautiful. Do you see what I'm saying? You take a scripture and you extrapolate it and say this is what it means when maybe God never intended for that. He didn't say you you should make yourself as unattractive as you possibly can. He's simply saying don't bank on your beauty based on those externals that you add to yourself. But people were in churches where they're being told, no lipstick, ladies, no fingernail polish, no makeup, that kind of thing. And this is essentially what these guys were accusing Jesus of, of violating God's law when in actuality his disciples may have at best been violating man's law. Now Jesus if I was him, I would have said, as, as Jesus, I would have said, you know what, you, you guys are, you're reading the rabbis, you're not reading God. Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he appealed like an attorney would to precedence. All right, precedent. You look at your own Old Testament scriptures. King David, when he, was, uh, he was, had been anointed king by God, but he was, wasn't on the throne yet. Saul was still on the throne, and Saul was trying to kill him. David and his men were on the run, and they, they don't have any food with him, and they stop at the temple, and the high priest gives them the showbread. Now, in the, in the tabernacle, this would have been the tabernacle before the temple, in the tabernacle, there was a little table, and every week there were 12 loaves of fresh bread that were put on that table. Every Sabbath, they would be replaced with new loaves. 
And nobody got to eat that bread except the priests. No one. It was considered sacred. But here's a man who's on the run for his life, and the high priest himself gives David this bread and says it's okay. Now, Jesus gives, a, in Matthew's account of this, in Matthew 12, Jesus gives another example of a precedent. He said, you're so concerned about not working on the Sabbath. Did, did it ever occur to you that all the priests work on Sabbath? And so, for example, many of you, today is your day of rest. Today is a day where you rest from your labors of the week. That's not true for me. Tuesday's my day of rest, sort of. My list is usually too long for that to be true. Betty and I have had some extended conversations about this. But people like me, we work on, on a, a day of rest. And Jesus said the, the priests do that as well. What about them? You're, you're making it sound like no one ever works. Now, the second incident, incident tells us here that Luke is trying to make a point. He does this may not have followed right on the heels. He just says on another Sabbath day, he's trying to show how big of a deal Sabbath was for Jesus' critics. And so now he heals a man on the Sabbath day. And of course, they were setting Jesus up. They were looking to catch him in some kind of violation of the law. And sure enough, he did it for them. Jesus points out, look, the law left you help. If we go, again, we go back to Matthew chapter 12. One of the arguments Jesus made there is, if your sheep falls in a well on a Sabbath, don't you pull it out? And the assumption was they, they did. And so now he says, you know, I, you're concerned about sheep day in and day out, but here's a man who need, has, he has physical needs, and you're somehow opposed to me meeting that, that physical need. Jesus told his critics that helping people mattered more to God than rigidly, rigidly keeping ceremonial rules. Now, again, that distinction is important here because Jesus was not trying to argue that helping people matters more than keeping moral laws. In other words, if you're going to commit adultery with someone and, and supposedly um, help them or murder someone supposedly to help someone. That's, that's not the point. We're talking about ceremonial or ritual laws. Because Jesus says, ceremony, Jesus' point is that ceremonial laws were meant to train people about God, not to excuse them to show, from showing God's mercy to other people. And again, he makes that argument in Matthew chapter 12. Now, here's Jesus' defense against his critics. Jesus said, you're accusing me of being a lawbreaker when in actuality, I am the lawmaker. Look back again at verse 5. Jesus added, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Now, don't mistake this to be Jesus saying, look, God said when I, can come, when I come to earth, I can do whatever I want with the law. I can break it. I can alter it. I can improve it. I can change it. It's not what he's saying. Rather, he is saying... I am the God who made the Old Testament law. I know the purposes that I intended for it. You see the difference? He's not saying God gave me permission to tweak it. He said I made it and I made it for this purpose, not that purpose. I never made it so that you could violate the spirit of mercy and caring for your fellow man. Never made it like that. I made it as a gift to you. 
I made it a blessing for you. If you've ever worked like three weeks straight, never had a day off, never had a Sunday off, never had a, took a Sabbath time, you know that your body and your mind starts to fall apart and you're just like, you can't even think anymore. Jesus, in one of his other debates about the Sabbath with his critics, said the, the, the Sabbath was not given to you as some sort of imposition. It wasn't given to you to burden you. It was given to you to relieve you. Because God knows the rhythm that your body has. God knows the rhythm that your mind has. God knows the rhythm that your soul has. And you need a break just to be healthy. Now, I want... Excuse me. I want to talk about how some of the things that I spoke about at the very beginning is fleshed out in the New Testament. Because here's my point. This is the Old Testament's point. All of the ritual law or ceremony, whatever word you want to use, that was given to Moses in Exodus and those couple of books following had one goal in mind. And that was to point to Jesus. The temple was meant to point to Jesus. The Sabbath was meant to point to Jesus. Circumcision was meant to point to Jesus. Even the dietary restrictions. All of that meant to point to Jesus. And let me try to show you that, having us look at a number of scriptures. Uh, let's go first to Matthew chapter 5 to set this up. Matthew five seventeen and 18. And if you have a highlighter along and this is not highlighted, if you have a pencil along and this is not underlined, you should do so now. There is no other passage in Scripture that better links the Old Testament to the New and better helps us understand what was going on with the Old Testament ritual law. In Jesus' own words, Matthew five seventeen and 18, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses... Or the writings of the prophets. So just keep that in mind. That means from, from Genesis to Malachi. There's three basic categories in the Old Testament. The law, the writings, and the prophets. The law would be the Torah, the first five books. Uh, the writings would include Psalms, Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and so forth. And then the uh, prophets would include all of the prophetic books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so forth. So he's speaking about the entire Old Testament. Don't misunderstood why I've come. I didn't come to abolish those things. I came to, say it with me, accomplish their purpose. Say it again. Accomplish their purpose. That means that there was a bigger picture in mind than simply keeping the Sabbath today. There was some sort of fulfillment in the future that was going to occur. And Jesus continues, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear... Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So let me have you go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. Let's start with circumcision. This strange, weird rite that was expected of Jewish males. Again, he commanded people to do this, uh, the Jewish males to do this, as a pointing to the ultimate covenant with God that can only come through Jesus. And so here we have Colossians 2.11 saying this. <clears throat> when you came to Christ, you were circumcised. And the and New Living Translation puts circumcised in quotes there, which is perfect. 
but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. In other words, when you have turned from your sin in faith and repentance, put your faith in Jesus Christ, there is a, the, this symbol of the Old Testament becomes a spiritual reality in your union with Jesus Christ, in that he cuts away your sinful nature. Doesn't mean it's gone, still has power, but its power has been broken, according to Romans, Romans 6. God wanted people to do this for 1,500 years. You go back to Abraham for 2,000 years so that people might understand what Jesus was accomplishing spiritually when he appears on the scene. Sacrifices. This was the biggest picture that God gave in the law of pointing to Jesus Christ. God wanted Jewish people to kill animals to symbolically pay for their sins. And in doing so, pointing out two things. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 9. By the way, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is the New Testament commentary on the Old Testament. You want to understand how the Old Testament works in terms of leading up to the New Testament. The book of Hebrews is, is that commentary. It speaks about how Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's a better high priest. And chapter 9, verse 22, tells us how these uh, ancient animal sacrifices were leading up to Jesus. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no what? No forgiveness. This was the message of every dead bull, sheep, goat, and turtle dove that the Israelites offered up. The message was over and over. And you, you can just imagine wandering around the tabernacle, wandering around the temple, and the stench of all this blood and all the smoke of the burning animals. They, were, they couldn't get away from it. They're being reminded every day and every year on the Day of Atonement, blood, death, blood, death is the cost of your sins. And secondly, sacrifices are pointing to how wonderful it's going to be once Messiah dies, once for all, to actually pay for sins, not symbolically like the animals did. Chapter 9 again of Hebrews, the end of verse 26. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. Two more things. Let's look at the temple. Take you back to John chapter 2. The gospel of John chapter 2, Jesus' own words. And this temple that was the center of civil and spiritual life for Israel, having that wood and stone house. This wasn't just a place of worship. This was a house where God dwelt in the most holy place, prepared God's people to rejoice once God himself arrived as a temple. Uh, Verse 19, John 2, verse 19, Jesus says this. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? And they were talking about Herod's temple, this magnificent structure that had been finished not that many years before. And Jesus continues, uh, but Jesus said this temple, when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. 
And so today, the, the spiritual life of, of Christians is not centered around some building. It's centered around the person of Jesus Christ. He is where God dwells because he is God. And then lastly, talking about Sabbath. Let me take you back to Hebrews again, chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning of verse 6. When God provided this weekly day of rest from labors, he was preparing his people for an eternal day of rest. Listen, not just to renew the body, but all of your life. Rest from trying to perform for God and adequately and instead resting in the good news of Jesus' work. So chapter 4, beginning at verse 6. So God's rest is there for people to enter. But those who first heard this good news, and he's talking about the ancient Jewish people, failed to enter because they disobeyed God. And so God set another time for entering his rest, and that time is today. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest... God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. He was speaking about Joshua taking them into the promised land. He's saying, no, the bigger picture of God's rest, of God's Sabbath, is beyond Palestine. He's speaking about eternal rest. For all who have, for their, I'm sorry, verse 9, for there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. And so let us do our part best, uh, do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fail. And he's speaking here about disobeying the invitation to come to Christ, to have all our burdens taken care of in Christ. So Jesus did not cancel the Old Testament. He fulfilled it. He completed it. And that is an amazing and important distinction. And so today, as we celebrate communion, and we've been talking to have the worship team come back up here as we transition to our communion time, I want you to embrace all that you have in Christ and all that has been fulfilled in Christ and rejoice in the freedom that you have in Christ. Today, you didn't need to bring a bull. You didn't need to bring a goat. You didn't need to bring a sheep. You don't have to, when you screw up this week, do that all over again. You don't have to worry about being put to death if you somehow violated the Sabbath, maybe even unknowingly. Because this is a time for us when we, we gather around the elements and remember, as Pastor Brandon said, remember the body that Jesus gave for us. Remember the blood that Jesus shed for us. This is a time of great, great liberty. And this last year I've been talking more and more about how we should be able to come with joy been sharing some of my uh, own journey in that regard. And I read this week uh, an article, article by a fellow pastor in Michigan who's kind of been on the same journey I am. And he wrote about growing our appetite for the Lord's Supper. He, re- he quotes John Calvin and says, Since then, it is a remedy which God has given us to assist our frailty, to fortify our faith, speaking about communion, to augment our charity, and to further us in all sanctity of life. So far from this making us abstain, in other words, being wary of coming to the table, we ought the more to make use of it, the more we feel oppressed by the disease, meaning the disease of sin. 
And Brian Hedges writes it this way. He said, in other words, when we decline the elements because we still feel weak in faith or integrity of life, we are like convalescents refusing to take medicine because we're too sick. In other words, when we come to the table and think, I'm not worthy to take these elements. That's the point. We come because we're not worthy. We come because we are needy. And so if you go down the chronicle of your week and you remember you did this and defamed God and you failed to do this and neglected God and you should have done this for this person, you're exactly the kind of person that needs to come to the table. You're exactly the kind of person who needs to avail yourself of these elements because God is good and we are not. Christ was sufficient and we are not. And so as we take the elements together, dig in with much joy. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is a time for you to indulge and delight in our Savior's work. We would ask those of you who are not believers yet, you're still on that journey to Christ to just pass the elements on by. There's a time for you coming when you're part of the family, not the Keystone family, but the family of Christ. But today we would urge you to wait and to consider Christ's call on your life. And his call comes to us from Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And somebody might have told you that if you come to Christ, life's going to get hard. Life's hard, period. But when you come to Jesus, Jesus deals with the main problem that you and I have had. And that's our sin and the broken relationship it creates between us and God. So we would ask you to prayerfully consider Christ's invitation Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest.